Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Julie Valerie is a best-selling author of Holly Banks, Full of Angst, and The Peculiar Fate of Holly Banks. These are books one and two of the Village of Prim series. She is the co-founder of The Bookish Road Trip, and she is a multiple degreed individual with particular <laughs> certifications in editing and also in wilderness first aid. A former trend forecaster, Julie joins us today from Virginia, where she is married to her high school and college sweetheart, and she lives there with her two children and her two Labrador retrievers. Julie, it is a joy to welcome you to the Storyteller Microphone. Well, thank you so much for having me, Grace. You know, I have to say right out of the gate, at first blush, you and I met over an interview that you did with the wonderful Annie McDonald over yes. in the World of the Right Review. Mm -hmm. And you then, and to this day, two years later, talk about writing in a way that I never have heard anybody else talk about oh. the magic of words. I just listened to you talk about writing, and I want to know for you, why is the writing of words so important? The writing of words is so important because the 26 letters that have been given to us and the ability to shape those 26 letters into infinite number of words and sentences and paragraphs, pages, novels, is just absolute um, magic to me. It's almost a form of alchemy. I've said that before. Um, to think that black ink on white paper can uh, allow you to escape into worlds you've never visited and come to believe that Harry Potter is actual and real and you've been to Hogwarts. Um, when actually, if you stop to think about it, Harry Potter is a set of letters, black ink on white paper. 26 letters gave us the world of Hogwarts. And I just think it's an absolute magical thing that happens when readers read writing and escape into the fictional reality that we find in novels today. I just think there's something special happening there. I agree with you. I frequently talk about when people say to me, oh, you're a writer. And all I do in, in response is say, I just rearranged 26 letters on a page. Over and over and over again, <laughs> over and over and over again. But they have shape. You know, the, the, there's not just the connotation and the denotation of what the word actually means, but then all the subtext and all the different layers of abstraction and then sliding words into different positions in the sentence. Um, there's a very analytical, um, logical pursuit to it, but it's also highly creative. And I think why I'm so attracted to it is it requires both hemispheres of your brain, your creative side, as well as your logistical analytical side to you know, fix all the grammar and get it on the page the correct way. And both hemispheres need to be firing at the same time and communicating with each other. And that's um, not very many things require both hemispheres at the same time. I think it's really just kind of cool at a brain science level. And I think this is why our listeners will already know why I love listening to you talk about writing. <laughs> oh, you are also, you. you're welcome. You're also incredibly generous because when I heard that interview with you and Annie McDonald, I tracked you down on your website and I found out how to contact you. And I said, oh my gosh, you are brilliant in how you write and how you speak of it. And I think a half hour later, you and I were on the phone. 
Yes. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you reached out to me because more than just the really very fascinating dynamic conversation we had in that short, that first um, telephone call, it led to a beautiful friendship. And I just so love having you in my life. I feel I feel so blessed to have you in my life. I'm so glad. And I would encourage others to reach out more often when they get the urge. Do so because you never know where one email, one phone call will lead. I think I'm so grateful that you did that. Thank you. And I think that that's such an important message that I try to carry with the Storytellers radio show and podcast in that the author community is an amazingly supportive community. You and I started over a phone call and now we Mm -hmm. partner on the Bookish Road Trip, which Mm -hmm. is probably one of the fastest growing Facebook groups and Instagram. (laughs) And it's just this explosion of bookish delight. So let's talk more specifically, though, about your books. You have written these two amazing books, Holly Banks, Full of Angst and The Peculiar Fate of Holly Banks. And I know you have more in this. There you go. And they're an audio book and they are everywhere. One of the things I love, um, Julie, about your work is that it is both laugh out loud funny. And I don't, I'm not somebody who reads and laughs out loud. And I laugh out loud at your work, but it's also nestled in this perhaps not at all peculiar human dilemma of angst. So could you talk more about both of those and how that's a theme for you and why? Yeah, sure. So I, um, humor is, I I couldn't survive without humor. And I think sometimes just with, without pausing in this crazy world of ours to focus in on the humor, um, I don't know how we would survive. I focused, I went really deep in the study of humor and went into all the different literary devices, all of the different tools available to stand up comic, to stand up comics, to people who use it in script writing, who um, create these amazing shows that we watch, Modern Family, Parks and Rec, The Office, some of those um, devices of humor, I just loved studying and wanted to see if I could pull it off on the page. So things like wordplay, using jokes, there's physical humor, um, there's satire, parody, there's all different devices of humor. And I started to realize it was important to employ as many as possible in one book because people laugh at different things. Um, You know, we think about um, like little kids laughing at fart jokes or something like that, or, <laughs> or, or people that real people that laugh out loud in a the theater because they got the joke in the room that no one else did. So there's so many different levels of humor and everybody brings a different attraction to different types of humor to whatever the situation is. I spiritually just wanted to give, I wanted the thought of a reader laughing out loud, um, in a really corny way, kind of made me feel like I was making the world a better place. I think that when laughter is produced, something in the air lifts cosmically, like the world over, if we just had a day where everybody laughed, I think it could heal a lot of wounds. Um, I was also very sympathetic to the role of the to the role of mothers and women and how we try so hard to get through the day without making any errors it's a high stakes game when we're trying to um navigate with a young family and the character of holly banks she is hopefully um somebody that people can relate to and laugh with and realize that for all the angsty things that happen in our day there's an awful lot of just crazy things to just laugh at and i think the core message of the book certainly is self-acceptance and through that little bit of humor and also a lot of angst. 
You talked about going deep. And one of the things I've been very impressed as I get to know you is you don't go shallow on very much. <laughs> no, no. I'm curious. I'm a curious person. And yeah. has that always been true? Or has that so. changed with your writing? Um, I think so. I, um, I'm interested in how things work. I'm interested in what's beneath the surface. So I remember one time coming across the concept of ladders of abstraction and the, and I started to get this idea that if you were to put a ladder right on top of a word, um, let's say car, um, you could climb the ladder in an abstraction and get very, very vague and move from car to say, transportation, which is more vague, like more abstract, sure. um, travel, etc. Or you could go very, you could needle down to the specific on the same ladder and not just car, but a Mini Cooper, a 19 or, a, you know, 2008 Mini Cooper, you know, blue, you could get really specific with it. And so I do like thinking of kind of the puzzles and riddles of life. Um, sometimes it is an intellectual pursuit to understand the puzzle beneath things, but it's also um, like a game, I guess, almost like a Sudoku of figuring things out. So if there's a, a body of knowledge that allows you to learn for the rest of your life or go deep with it or, or to play with it or to be creative with it, I'm really, really attracted and drawn to those things for sure. It certainly helps your writing because the texture of your writing, if you will, is very rich and you have these wonderful devices within your writing, like the topiary. Mm -hmm. um, talk a little bit about that and what you had to learn about topiary, but also I want you to get to the part of, does it slow down your writing? Because I think as authors, we go down rabbit holes and sometimes get lost. I absolutely do get lost often. Um, yes, the image of the or the um, the topiary in the the world of the village of Prim. Um, there's a topiary park at the center of the village, and mostly what I'm doing with the uh, topiary and also with Plume, this 40 foot tall topiary pea head that is at the center of the topiary park, and it comes under attack, and the plot kind of wraps around it, is the idea that. The topiary would have never existed if humans didn't snip it into place. And you think about the topiaries that are actual Disney princesses down at Epcot Center or the topiaries that we do in our actual yards. Um, the plant would not naturally go, grow into the shape of a peacock or a dog or, you know, go up and have those three balls. And I often think, in what ways do we in society and culture snip ourselves into these unnatural shapes that we would we wouldn't naturally yes. grow into. And why do we think of that as a beautiful aesthetic when it's almost a tortured state of trying to shape everything? And especially in the first book, um, some of the themes of this is certainly the pursuit of perfection and the price that people pay, not just um, themselves, but also their families. And so I did put a very large topiary peahen, which was actually an allegory about perfection and how it can eat away at you right at the center of the novel because I was very curious about that. Birds it are- was such a, It was such yeah. a perfect device, this- Oh, thank you. Perfect town, has this perfect topiary, and there's poor Holly Banks trying to yes. make it all perfect. And Right, and all is not as it seems. As we learn, her main antagonist, Mary Margaret St. James, doesn't exactly have the perfect life after all. Um, and so I think I do like to poke at that through satire because I think when we try to do, it's okay, of course, we all want to do our best, but I think the pursuit of perfection has its cost. 
And so it's a cautionary tale that will hopefully make you laugh along the journey. It does. Now talk about the rabbit holes, please. The rabbit holes. Um, I do sometimes lose myself in symbolism and allegory and literary devices, but I also get lost, lose myself in trying to hide them. A reviewer early on called the works covertly sophisticated, which I think is a way, instead of just saying I w- that, I think it, I think what they're talking about is that you have to look a little bit um, deeper to see what I'm trying to do with with the work. It's not necessarily just a straightforward novel to read. Things have symbols, things are connected. There's birds in both of the books. Um, There is a ultralight aircraft called Henny Penny, which in the second book, um, which is a play on folklore and folk tales, and it plays into the plot. And so whereas Plume, the 40 but Topiary Peacock in the first book is an allegory. We've got a folktale in the other. I kind of see the village of Prim in part, um, like a bird sanctuary in a way. As much as I love topiaries, I do admire birds. I think they're beautiful. They bring us beautiful colors. They bring us song and beautiful sound. And my gosh, they fly, which is kind of really a cool thing. And so they just kind of flip into your world. They're really beautiful. They look at you. You can't get close to them. They sing and then they're off again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I just think that that's kind of a cool thing to think about as well. These, so what in our lives are fleeting and beautiful, and then take off, and that you can't really reach and pick up and hold, um, but it's all around us. I have lots of bird feeders. I love attracting them to my yard because I just think they're nice to look at and think I, about. I, oh, I do as well. Yeah. Part of the feel for both of your books is that sense of trying to find our happy place. Yes. That there is this theme, I think, perhaps, that that's something you want your readers to find, to strive for their own happy. Yes. Is that a fair statement? It's a very fair statement. It was one of my goals when I was writing it. I was wanting to tell the tale of a less than perfect woman searching for mostly happy and a pretty good life. I think there is a pressure not only to be perfect, or to you know do your best at all times, and we we're so punishing of ourselves when we mess up or do something wrong. But also, I think there's enormous pressure on people to be happy. Well, what is happy? There is a passage in the book. It's actually a, a school assignment that Holly has to do with her daughter that looks at different. Um, it's like a walk through a thesaurus and different forms of happy, um, like. Or if you can't be happy, can you be content? Can you be, you know, not unhappy? Can you, it goes through kind of the yes. search through vocabulary to alternatives, which almost takes the pressure off us of, of pursuing that elusive happy. Maybe today you're just not unhappy. Maybe today you're content. Maybe today you're, you know, fill in the blank. Um, but I do, I do embrace through the book, the concept of less than perfect, and the concept of the journey and the search for mostly happy in a pretty good life. Because I think probably most people, if they caught their breath long enough to reflect, they'd see that they have a pretty good life. While everything isn't perfect and um, they might not be happy, whatever that is, things are pretty darn good for the most part, you know? Or kind of the daily bread concept. You know, I've, I've got a sandwich on my plate, I've got a cup of tea, and I'm, I'm doing just fine. So it's yeah. such a great message to appreciate yeah. what we have and then, you know, see the world from that perspective yeah. as well. So this yeah. is a series and I know there'll be more, but you're working mm-hmm. on other things. Tell us about that. I am. 
I am. So I'm working on my uh, my third novel. Well, I'm working on two novels at the same time. One is the third book in the series, but the but I think I'm going to write that as my fourth project because there's another project that I've been wanting to write for a number of years, and so I've been working really hard on that. Um, I did a very extensive outline and a couple of months ago was able to drive and take a road trip through the outline, which was really amazing because what I was researching was a road trip plot line that would take a family from um, Montana all the way down to Las Vegas. And so I was able to travel a very um, historic and beautiful site and look at the contrast um, in the topography and the landscape in the United States. So that has been really, really fun. Um, and I'm also... I have like two levels of distraction, my writing certainly, and my work with you on the bookish road trip and the community of writers and readers, but also I do enjoy studying wine. And I am currently studying for my level three um, wine and spirit education trust award in wine. And so um, it's for a lot of people, that's a full-time job. So when I'm tired of studying the wine for the wine exam, I'll hop over and work on writing and vice versa. So it's, an, it's nice to have both. And that sounds like an easy pursuit, but I'm sure it's incredibly difficult. Um, yeah. What's been the most challenging thing with the wine besides having to taste it? Um, you know, the pronunciations, I think more than anything. I think I, I would love to write a list of things that I, I've read them. It's one thing to read a word and not have and, and not know how to pronounce it. And the world of wine is global. And so you're you're wondering about the German pronunciations and the Spanish pronunciations, the French pronunciations. And sometimes when you Google it, I, I speak American English, but a lot of the people that I follow yes. online and who teach courses ha are from England. And so I'm wondering, am I getting the correct French pronunciation by way of, uh, of an English dialect that is different from American? In what way is my accent doing a horrible job at pronouncing these words? And so I don't know if it exists yet, but I would love for there to be a video or a course I could take where a native French speaker would give us the pronunciations in French and a native speaker of Spanish would give us the pronunciations in Spanish because I would love to navigate that a little bit better. Um, and then just managing the task of studying for something that is geography and climate and individual grape varieties and winemaking methods and decisions in the vineyard and the business itself. And it's this big world of maps and index cards and notebooks. And so sometimes I can get myself lost in just the uh, navigating the ecosystem of the, of, the, of the studying. So, but it's wonderful. I do love it. Well, it's never, ever dull to talk to Julie Valerie. I hope Aww. everybody follows you on your website. You have so many things that I want to invite you back to talk about. Um, your, road, your road trip was amazing. Um, yeah. I always like to end my shows by asking something quirky about you, something that perhaps your followers might not know about. Hmm. Um, I'm section hiking the Appalachian Trail with my best friend. And so we have set out on the course to finish it by the year 2035. Um, we're going to be a lot older at that time, so hopefully our knees will, you know, allow us to do it. Um, we have already hiked sections in 13 of the 14 states. And then um, as our first milestone, once we hike a section in Maine, we'll check our first milestone off of the list and then look at tackling whether we do all of Virginia, which is 25% of the total trail, which um, goes from Georgia to Maine or Maine to Georgia. Or if we'll go back to some of the smaller states and focus on, um, you know, checking them off of the list. But it's also another um, project that is large in scope and requires a lot of study and effort. 
what to pack, what to eat, you know, when we're going, how are we sleeping, what's the weather. So there's a lot to figure out just to hit the trail. But I love it. It's wonderful being in nature. Well, I hope everybody follows Julie Valerie. Julie, where can they find you on your website, Julie Valerie? Yep. Ju everything's at julievalerie.com. I've got an author newsletter that would be lovely if they'd consider subscribing. Information about the books and myself are at julievalerie.com. Julie, thanks for being such a wonderful guest on The Storytellers. My pleasure. And thanks for coming back again. This has been a copyrighted episode of The Storytellers by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks for being with us. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon.